Great. Thank you, Dan and Ben. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hiawatha. It's great to see you all. Merry Christmas. Happy Advent. To those of you who are fine saying Merry Christmas on December 10th, um, to the rest of you, we'll see in a week, I guess, or two. But, um, but no, hope you guys are doing well. Actually, Letha and I have friends who put their tree up on October 21st this year. So we make fun of them for that. Um, but they're holding strong. They're holding strong. Um, but so it's, it's a range, right? It's all relative. But, um, but no, Merry Christmas to you all. Thanks so much for coming today. If it's your first Sunday, like Spencer said, welcome to you, especially to our church. Uh, we are in a series right now in the books of First and Second Samuel. Um, and so if you want to turn to chapter 15, that's where we'll be today. Just to catch you up a little bit on where we are, we are in that portion of uh, biblical history and Israel's history where they're transitioning into the era of the kings. And the kings are important because they shape for us what the ultimate king will be like. Uh, that is Jesus Christ. And so we're learning a lot by way of similarity and contrast. The Bible is a book of both. Sometimes it's saying Jesus is not going to be like this. And sometimes it's saying Jesus is going to be very much like this. And knowing which bucket or category to put those things in is very important in theology. Um, right now we're in the middle of the Saul narrative. Saul is the first king of Israel. Uh, and, and so we're in the middle of those stories in the book of 1 Samuel. We're calling Saul the people's king because of how much he represents the strength and will of man over and against God, which is why it was sinful for them to ask for him in the first place. We talked about that a few weeks ago. And how he'll be set up to contrast with David, who is God's king. We'll meet him next week. Uh, today's passage, though, has to do with Saul. And I think today we can start to call him the failed experiment. Uh, it's the beginning of his downfall. And so we'll keep, he's going to be a part of the story for a number of weeks still, but this is a significant moment in his life, and it's not really a good one. Uh, but we learn a lot about ourselves through this, and a lot about God, a lot about the two covenants of Scripture, a lot about grace, and ultimately a lot about Jesus. So uh, today's sermon's called God Rejects Saul and Sacrifice, interestingly, with him from 1 Samuel 15, 15 to 28. I want to summarize, though, the first 14 verses to kind of give us a little bit of a headwind to what we're going to really focus on in the latter part of the, the chapter today. So basically what's going on in chapter 15 is God commands Saul to go and attack one of their uh, kind of principal enemies nationalistically, which is the Amalekites. The Amalekites were a nation that attacked Israel when they were coming up out of Egypt unprovoked, uh, a, a nation of wickedness and sin. It actually says as much in the passage today. We'll get there. Um, but God says to totally wipe them out, man, woman, child, infant, and animal, due to their pervasive sin and their enemy status with Israel. So now, we've broached this tricky theological matter a couple of times already in this series, but I'll just say a couple of things again here. Um, it's really important to let a big view of sin inform what's going on. When we come across these passages about infants being killed, uh, these kind of almost, this almost genocidal language uh, being utilized at times in the Old Testament. Um, I think we can confidently say with the Bible in front of us, but also a reason and experience, but the Bible in front of us, that no one is truly innocent before God. Psalm 51 says, I was sinful at birth. Not when I was a toddler and the terrible twos, that's obvious. But at birth, I was a sinner. Um, God is, so God is right to hate evil. That's another kind of sub-point under this. God is right and good, actually, 
to hate evil. And he does so more than we do. No matter how much we think we're crusading against evil in this world, in our life, and how much we feel better about ourselves for doing so, God actually hates it more. He's more righteous than us. And he always will be. Um, now, with that said, though, the Bible often moves us from what is right to what is better than right. As strange as that might sound. The Bible often moves us from what is right to what is even better than right. And part of what we're meant to do with passages like this is to see ourselves in the Amalekites and to yearn for days when sin will be passed over and forgiven rather than punished and exposed and spotlighted. And that day has come with Jesus. And so remember, God is about, from this vantage point in history, and we're on the other side of this, so we're thinking past tense, but from this vantage point in the Bible, in, in history, God is about to send his son to become the one wiped out for us. In fact, uh, another way to look at this then uh, is maybe we're supposed to feel a bit of relative innocence to some of these Amalekites, even though they aren't innocent, some relative innocence so it can remind us of the truly innocent one who will be slaughtered in our place so we can live. At least understand this. Good theology often comes from a good initial burn or a nagging question, or a yearning for a better way. And that's precisely what's going on here in this section of Scripture um, and today in focus in 1 Samuel 15. All right? Okay, end of sidebar. But as the story goes, um, Saul doesn't totally follow through with what God asked of him. He mostly destroys the Amalekites, but he spares their king and much of their animals. Then it says this very damning statement, the Lord regretted making Saul king. The Lord regretted what he did. All right, this upset Samuel. Uh, he um, prays all night to God about it. Then he confronts Saul the next day. Saul defends himself, saying, I did everything right. But then Samuel says, then what's all that lowing and bleeding I hear of the Amalekites cattle and sheep. And that's where we pick up today in verse 15. All right, this is what we'll look at in greater depth here. Let's read this in full to begin. Verse 15, so this is the confrontation. Saul answered, kind of defended, the soldiers spared the best of the sheep and the cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God, but we totally destroyed the rest. Enough, Samuel said to Saul. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Tell me, Saul replied. Samuel said, although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and he sent you on a mission saying, go and completely destroy those wicked people, the Amalekites. Wage war on them until you have wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? But I did obey the Lord, Saul said. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag, their king. The soldiers took sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God, in order to sacrifice to them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. But Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice. And to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I violated the Lord's command and your instructions. 
I was afraid of the men, and so I gave in to them. Now I beg you, forgive my sin and come back with me so that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to him, I will not go back with you. You have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you as king over Israel. As Samuel turned to leave, Saul caught hold of the hem of his robe, and it tore. Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to one of your neighbors, to one better than you. Okay, so uh, what we're going to do today is look at, um, I think, the, the, the principal thing in terms of like, um, how much like, text and words are given over to it. The principle, let's just call it a lesson today, which is obedience is better than sacrifice, something God says through Samuel um, to Saul and to all of us. Obedience is better than sacrifice, and we'll kind of come back to how it ends here uh, to tie a bow on it, all right? So in a lot of ways, the, the central component to this passage is not simply Saul's confrontation of Samuel's confrontation of Saul and the Lord's rejection of Saul, but how it serves as a platform for this lesson. Obedience is better than sacrifice. And by the way, I forgot to mention, uh, look at that word better as well. The word better comes up twice in this passage. Um, I've said a few times in the series already, the Bible is a story of betters and lessers. It's not all betters. A lot of people approach the Bible as though it's all equal, all on the same level, all better, simply because it comes from God. But God himself is not saying that. God is saying, sometimes I work in lessers in order to, to give way to betters. There are better things and lesser things in the Bible. And to not see this is to completely miss the point. And I'll walk through some of these things today. But it's a broader principle for when you read your Bible to ask that question. What's the better way? What's the lesser way that's, preparing, that's fading and giving way to the better thing. And that's actually kind of what we're seeing here today in this idea. Obedience is better than sacrifice. So, one of the twists here is that Saul thinks he did everything right. And we don't know if he's lying or not, or just kind of blind. It's, it doesn't say. But it seems like he actually thinks he did what God asked him. Which further begs the question, what did he do wrong exactly? In one sense, the answer is simple. He didn't completely wipe out the Amalekites. God said, do ten things, Saul did nine and a half, and that wasn't enough. But digging deeper, Saul says, I brought back the best of the animals to God. Isn't that a good thing? I brought back the best of their, the plunder, these cattle and sheep to, to, to offer as a sacrifice to God. And that's the problem. So it wasn't just that he didn't kill the animals, it's that he brought them back to sacrifice, to which God says, I didn't ask for that. You're seeking to give me something I didn't ask for. All right, so now we're about to enter into some high theology here. Uh, so hang tight. It's okay if you feel a little bit lost during some of this. I'll do my best to keep us on track. But this is a huge thing in the Bible. This is part of a larger theme of how God is saying in Scripture, I don't want the thing that I formerly asked of you. I've changed my mind almost. I'm, I'm changing the way that, that I'm, I'm relating to you. I don't want the thing I formerly told you I wanted. And it's confusing because of that. But that thing is sacrifice, or more broadly, law. Uh, Jesus is famous for quoting himself, one of the prophets, in saying, Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. 
Well, again, um, God, I thought you were the one who instructed sacrifice to happen in the beginning, though. God's response, actually, you wanted law more than I did. But I gave it for a time to point you to me. But it was never meant to last. And now I'm setting it aside for better things. I'm showing you in these stories that I'm preferencing other things. Things that pertain more directly to me, less to you. Things that actually bring life and not more death. So going back to 1 Samuel 15, Saul's beginning to be confronted by this. And we are as readers as well in the story. It's actually kind of meant to be confusing or a bit of a speed bump or abrupt. Because again, God is saying, I asked you this here. Now I'm saying I don't want it. Actually, in the, elsewhere in the prophets, he says, I actually despise it, which is stronger language. Not just this is better than this, but I despise your sacrifices. I despise what you bring to me. And so again, we're meant to ask, why? Well, what's going on? How is this telling a story? Well, Saul's being confronted by this on how he was seeking to do something for God that God didn't ask for. Again, that is bringing him a sacrifice. Now, part of this has to do, again, with what Saul represents. So if you're just joining the series, we've been talking about how Saul is not just an historical figure. He's an allegory. He represents something beyond himself, as all of the principal characters do in the Bible. They point beyond themselves to something spiritual, something much bigger going on. And that is, again, being the people's king, or the king of the people's strength and will and choice, which in turn makes him a king of the law of the Old Testament, versus David, who will not be a king of the law, he'll be a king of grace. But the broader theology being here, God wants something else other than our work for him. He wants something else. He wants an obedient king to fight his people's battles. That's what's better. And so the duality here, the things being contrasted, are our works versus an obedient king. Now look closely at that. Before you're too quick to make that a lesson about you and your obedience and how you should try hard not to be like Saul, that's not what this is saying. Notice it's actually about two objective-to-you principles, our works versus someone else's obedience, a king outside of us. And this is exactly how David ends up writing about it in Psalm 40. So again, we'll meet David next week, but we're going to like talk about how David does theology and when he writes some of his prophetic songs, we call psalms, in the Old Testament, Psalm 40 being the best place to see this, which then Hebrews 10 in the New Testament picks up on and does theology with. So this is one of those places in the Bible where we have a hard passage that the Bible says, this is how you understand it. I'm telling you how to understand it. So it's actually a lot less, you know, guesswork we might, we might think we bring sometimes, uh, which we actually aren't. But uh, it feels like there's less of that because the Bible's actually saying, this is what 1 Samuel 15 actually means by way of Psalm 40. But let me read from Hebrews 10. All right, so follow along with this. Now, notice how 
the author of Hebrews is quoting Psalm 40, which sounds a lot like 1 Samuel 15, and how he's doing theology with it. All right? Verse 5. When Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. Then I said, Here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. So that's a quote of Psalm 40, all right? Now look at how he comments on it and does theology with it. First, he said, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and offerings, you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, though they were offered in accordance with the law. So again, he's kind of saying, but God commanded the law to be kept. But still, later in the story, we see God actually didn't want it to. He didn't want the law. He wanted something else, something better, something different. And that's what he continues in verse 9. Then he moves on. He says something different. Here I am. I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Okay, this is masterful, masterful biblical theology. And notice what he's saying. Hebrews 10 is, in, again, interpreting 1 Samuel 15 by way of Psalm 40, and here's what he's doing with it. First notice, there's two sections here. There's a movement from God not wanting sacrifices and offerings, or more broadly, the law, to stand in between us and him, to instead wanting the obedience of a Davidic king, his son, Jesus Christ. Actually, if you look at the very first verse in verse 5, it says, not David said this, but Jesus said these words. They're actually the words of Jesus, not David. David was a pointer to the true one who ultimately said the words of Psalm 40 through his ministry and through his sufferings for us on a cross. So he's saying then to us in Psalm 40, and David's picking up on this in a way that Saul did not, but Jesus is saying through David, spiritually you could say, that the time of the law is ending. The time of men saving themselves by what they do and keeping themselves in covenant with God by what they do, keeping themselves sanctified by what they do, is ending. It's being passed up by this second better thing, which is the era of an, the obedient son on our behalf. One who will raise his hand for us and say, here I am, God, I'll be obedient for them. I will obey you all the way to the cross and shed my blood. And that what is what the author of Hebrews is saying is the essence of the New Testament, over and against the old. They're different. First this, then this. Lesser, then better. Movement from law to Jesus. It even says he sets aside the first. So, Again, if you're inclined to think that Jesus came to add himself to the law, add himself to your obedience in terms of what it means to be saved from our sins, that's not what the Bible actually says. The Bible says he sets aside something for the sake of something else, which means he set aside the old covenant to establish the gospel, the second covenant, the New Testament. He's seen two covenants in Psalm 40, as we should in 1 Samuel 15. God, again, not ultimately wanting the first covenant and setting it aside 
in order to establish a better way of relating to sinners. One that will not crush us or ask anything of us, but that will give us grace after grace after grace in spite of ourselves. By his own sacrifice, not the religious works of human beings. All right, then notice this. This is the, the, the verse that he ultimately lands on with his theology. He says, By that will, you have been made holy once for all through the sacrifice of Jesus. By that will, that act of obedience, by the one who said, Behold, God, here I am ready to do your will. What God ultimately wanted by the voice and will of Jesus who obeyed God to the cross for us, we, that's how you and I are made holy. Honestly, you guys, I can think of a few more freeing and important verses in the entire New Testament uh, th- that, uh, in, than I can Hebrews 10.10. Because if Hebrews 10.10 is true, then nothing we do can make ourselves more or less holy. Nothing. There's nothing you can do to make yourself more or less holy. Now we can choose to differing degrees of how much we want to live out of that truth, but we can never add to it or increase it in any way, nor can we lose it. Because look, it's past tense. It's given. It's once For all, once for all, you've been purified by the obedience of someone else, not incrementally every day by your obedience trying to struggle to be a good person. That's religion. That's not Christianity. That's not what both the Old and New Testament have to say about the state of affairs before a holy God in our sin. Someone else's obedience is what makes you holy. This is Christianity, someone else's. Not someone else's obedience got you in the door and now you're saved, but now it's up to your obedience to keep you saved. That's not what it says. Do you believe you're perfectly, unchangeably holy by the obedience of someone else? Or do you think that you kind of muck around with that with your daily struggles to obey on on a daily basis? That's the question. If it's the latter, then this passage invites us to a better way because that former way is a lesser way of thinking about Jesus. It lowers Jesus and amplifies you. See, if we make these stories in 1 Samuel 15 about ourselves and transpose it onto our day-to-day spirituality, then we're left with a message of God must want my perfect obedience like Saul. So if I don't perfectly obey God to the final detail, if I do nine and a half things, not ten things that he's asking of me, then he'll reject me like Saul. But that's not what this is saying. It's actually about the opposite of that. It's about God rejecting that way of relating to us, which is good news. It's about him wanting to bring his own sacrifice into history his own obedience into history through another better king. 
And, and for more on that, we, we turn to verses 27 and 28. Let's see how Samuel finishes here. As Samuel turned to leave, Saul caught hold of the hem of his robe and it tore. Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to one of your neighbors. Here's that word again, to one better than you. All right, so again, who is the better one? The answer is David. David is better than Saul. We'll keep looking at this in future weeks. But David's being referred to here. David is going to get the throne because God's going to give it to him. But this is not about like trivial favoritism here based on intrinsic value. Because we know in Christ with God there's no favoritism. So again, this is where we have to kind of step back and say this is not about that or about me on that level or us. This is about something more. David is better than Saul because the covenant David will represent is better than the covenant Saul represents. To go back to Hebrews again, Hebrews 8 says, but in fact, the covenant of which Jesus is a mediator is superior to the old, since the new covenant is established on better promises. For if there had been nothing wrong with the first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But in fact, there was a seeking. And it wasn't even like us. It was God himself who was seeking the better way to covenant and relate to sinners in a better way based on better promises. Not our promises to him, but his promises to us. That's how they differ, yet another way in how they differ. So I, what, what, I, what I love then about First Samuel 15 is it's easy to miss this in light of the judgment feel of it, but it actually isn't just about judgment. It's a grace for us because if this is true, then God is saying, I'm about to tear away the idea that you need to bring your works and sacrifices to me, and I'm going to replace it with, I'm bringing my son's work and sacrifices to you. That's what this is saying, or to throw a few more dualities up here. David is better than Saul, just like grace is better than law, just like new covenants better than old, just like second is better than the first. And for those of you who um, maybe have been reading Genesis lately, you notice that with, when the twins come up a lot in Genesis, how the second born is always preferenced over the first, and you're kind of like, well, that's backwards. Well, that's because God values seconds over firsts to just kind of mess with our brain a bit and say that's not normal. But the reason he's doing that ultimately is because the New Testament is going to have preference over the old, and they can't play together. Uh, and this is why God is despising the first, not just saying I'm, I'm blending it with my son, but I'm changing it completely. But there's even better news than this when it comes to Samuel's robe. Um, this tearing isn't a random word that God is using for change. Because if you think about it, there could be a lot of things that happen here at the end of the story that signified the change. Uh, of changing of the guard. But God in his word puts a tearing of a robe for a reason. And it's a particular word that alludes to suffering. Because the kingdom isn't transferred without suffering. The covenants in the Bible don't switch over without this new king being torn himself, just like Samuel's robe. In fact, um, also in Hebrews 10, 
It says we have confidence now as Christians to enter the most holy place where God is by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the torn curtain of the temple. But actually, it wasn't just the temple. It was his body being torn itself. Okay, so this is such good news. If this is true, this is the most relieving news any of us will ever hear our entire life. Everything else is a distant second. This is like, 1 Samuel 15 is saying to us, um, lots of dark things, but there's a glimmer of light here that we can't miss. In light of all the horrors of the passage, like the Amalekites being destroyed, Saul's arrogance and disobedience, you know, and rejection by God, and even seeing regret in the heart of God, and maybe for us, leaving us with a question of like, well, who then has any hope? Or like the, the disciples asked Jesus in the New Testament, who then can be saved? If we don't read the Bible, you know, uh, in a way that leads us to that point, I think we're missing, we're missing something. We, we too have to get to a point and say, well, on the basis of that, or that teaching, or that story, or that premise, who has any hope? Well, in light of all the horrors of 1 Samuel 15, the robe is torn. And that changes everything. The robe is a signpost of a coming time when heaven itself would be torn open like it was at Jesus' baptism. And when the true and better obedient king would come from heaven to be flogged and crucified in the place of sinners like us, that we might live. To quote Hebrews again, everything else was set aside, even parts of scripture were set aside for the sake of this. The better thing from him. And so the invitation is to receive this Christian, receive this non-Christian, even in the depths of the, the darkest corners of the Old Testament, in places of hopelessness, in the face of our sin, our Saul-like disobedience, our failures, our unmet expectations, Jesus' light shines out for us to see and to hope in. And so the ultimate invitation, even here in this story, is believe in the better one, believe in the better way, believe in the New Testament, believe in Jesus, the torn one for you and me, and you'll be saved. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage. Thank you for how it just beckons us forward in this story to not just a better temporal king in David, but a better ultimate king in Jesus. And not just a better way of you starting to talk to sinners in an Old Testament way, but uh, in an ultimate sense when you would covenant with us through the obedience of your son, not maintaining it with our obedience, but constantly, every day, covenanting with, relating to, moving towards and showing mercy towards sinners on the basis of your work for us, not our work for you. We thank you for these challenging stories. We thank you how Jesus clarifies them for us. Um, thank you for your love. Thank you for Christmas time when Jesus was born in the unlikeliest of ways, as Dan prayed before, the unlikeliest of places. 
um, to show us that it is not by man's wisdom. It, it confounds our strength, confounds our expectations and wisdom because grace does that. Grace says in the face of our sin, I love you anyway and I'll suffer and take the tearing and the bullet. I'll be torn to shreds for you in love for you. That's, that's your word for us, God. And we thank you that Psalm, or 1 Samuel 15 is, um, is a, another iteration of that amazing gospel story that consoles sinners, that frustrates the proud, uh, but consoles sinners and shows mercy, and how mercy triumphs over all our abilities uh, to be good. And uh, we thank you for that. In Christ we pray. Amen.